All right, if you want to join me back in the book of Exodus in the 26th chapter, where we pick back up in our journey verse by verse through the book of Exodus. At this point, we are now beginning to look at the description of the uh, instructions and the, the construction of the tabernacle, uh, basically this portable worship system that God uh, told uh, Moses about, really revealed uh, Moses uh, in a spiritual revelation as we alluded to last time as we began to look at this together uh, through a vision as he called Moses up into the mount and as Moses was there 40 days and 40 nights together in the presence uh, of the Lord with the Lord that he was showing him things things and revealing these things great detail the extent of them uh, as we began to look at this last time in chapter 25 which was kind of where we left off uh, in the 25th chapter we kind of from the inside working outward the, the first thing that God gave to Moses description about was three of the furnishings on the interior of the tabernacle itself again the tabernacle remember is this portable tent uh, that they would put up and down as they would journey around the wilderness uh, they would set it up uh, and they would utilize it for uh, their worship and sacrificial system and then when the divine direction of God would call them to move on uh, they would then take down the tabernacle as instructed and uh, those of the tribe of Levi would then carry and bear all of the articles and the furnishings and so forth to the new location and set it back up again. Uh, but it was utilized for the worship system as God is enacting it now. And uh, last time we looked at the three interior furnishings, specifically the Ark of the Covenant, which remember had the mercy seat on top of that, and that was where atonement was made, as we talked about once a year, where the high priest would go in with the blood of a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people. It was in the back room of the tabernacle, and we'll talk a little bit more about this this evening as we go on and talk about the actual tabernacle structure itself. But the the Ark of the Covenant was that one singular furnishing in the back in what was called the most holy place. And then in the front room where you first entered in, uh, we talked about uh, the, the, the table of the bread of presence or the table of showbread as we call it. Uh, and then across that on the other side of the room was the lampstand, what we often refer to as the menorah, uh, was basically an oil lamp. The old King James actually calls it a candlestick. That's probably not the best translation. Again, remember candles are self-consuming. Uh, it wasn't a candle, it was actually an oil lamp where oil was supplied, the wicks were trimmed by the priests on a regular basis so that there would perpetually be light uh, inside of there and unlike a candle which itself would be self-consuming and would go out, uh, a lampstand is probably the better description of what that actually was. So we looked at those things and of course as we began to talk about those things we made mention how again kind of as, as a backdrop to this that it was very essential that Moses pay very careful attention to all of God's instruction and the pattern of how he received this because as Hebrews chapters 8, uh, 9 and 10 tell us particularly chapter 8 these were a copy in the shadow of things that somehow exist in the eternal dimensions and that's why this was very important that Moses pay attention Again, whether there is literally some type of existence of these same type of 
you know, furnishings and things that we see in the tabernacle worship system, or whether they are, are pictures and allusions to aspects of the eternal realm, that there's an altar of God. And uh, again, the Bible tells us in Revelation that God keeps our prayers like incense in bowls. And uh, again, these things were essential for Moses to do specifically because somehow they had a connection to what exists in the eternal realms. And again, Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10 really give great description. I encourage you to read them in, in, in connection with these chapters because you'll see how Jesus, our great high priest, went in with his blood once for all, it says, to make eternal redemption as his blood was applied there for the sacrifice that he made for our sins once for all. But again, the tabernacle, many of its aspects, as we talked about, portray Christ. And we mentioned some of them last week, the you know table of uh, showbread that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And the, the lampstand, it was the one sole source of light in the tabernacle. There was no natural light that existed. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So as we look at this again, we realize that many of these furnishings represent aspects of the life and the ministry of Jesus and are uh, symbolic of who he is. And uh, again, we'll point out some of them, but other ones you may even see and sense some of those things as you're reading through that the Spirit may bring to your attention. Uh, but as we come to chapter 26 now, what we really begin to look at now in chapter 26 is basically the actual structure of the tent itself. Uh, so again, we're moving from God's perspective from the inside working outward. God deals with the furnishings inside the tabernacle and then in chapter 26 he talks about the tabernacle itself and then he moves out to talk about things in the courtyard and then sort of the fence-like area so God works from the inside out as he records these things now that should sound familiar doesn't it God works from the inside out that's the way that God works and that's the way that God views things uh, God doesn't change a person from the outside in uh, God does a metamorphosis from the inside out God gets a hold of your heart and he gets involved in your life and when a person as a sinner opens their heart up to the Lord Jesus Christ not only does Jesus forgive sins but he actually comes in and takes up residence inside your life and from the inside out he changes you inwardly uh, like a metamorphosis process and then you begin to see the effects as he works from the inside out by his spirit's presence within you so at this point now chapter 26 we move on now to the actual structure of the tabernacle itself and the tabernacle again uh, basically size wise this tabernacle we'll see uh, is basically 45 foot long uh, it's 15 foot wide and the height of it is about 15 foot high and basically it's a wooden frame overlaid with gold the acacia wood we'll see overlaid with gold and that wooden frame was set then in silver sockets and then over top of that, we'll see draped four different layers uh, or coverings that went over that. So again, if you envision a tent as they are today still, you have kind of the, the frame-like poles that you put in and then the vinyl is draped over top of it. Well, that's the idea with this. There were boards that were actually interlocked, acacia wood overlaid with gold, set in silver sockets. They somehow with tenons were tied together. Again, they weren't permanently fastened, keep in mind, because they had to 
to come apart every time they moved. And then there are four layers of different skins draped over top of it. Uh, and we'll see kind of how this unfolds. Basically, chapter 26 begins to describe to us the structure and actually these four different layers beginning with the first covering as we look at the first six verses. We read chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle, the tent, with ten curtains of fine woven linen, so like a, a white linen this would be, a pure white linen. But notice also this white linen, this is the most interior curtain or the interior layer to the inside. This was also, it says, of the woven linen and blue and purple and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim and you shall weave them. And the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits and every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. So notice a, a total of 10 curtains is what this is describing and you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain. And one set, and likewise you shall do on the outer edge of the curtain of the second set, and then fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge on the curtain is on the second set, and that the loops may be clasped to one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with clasps, so that it may be one tabernacle. Now you got that, right? because we're distributing a test directly after <laughs> the, the service this evening. Talk about a lot of detail, huh? Uh, doesn't it speak very clearly the fact that God is a God of detail and he cares about details? And I don't know about you, but can I just say by way of application, that's very precious to me because there are a lot of details to my life. Uh, there are a lot of different details of what goes on in my life and different spheres and areas of my life that I have to keep track of and attend to. And I'm thankful that God's not kind of just aloof and disconnected, that, that he actually is a God of the details. The Bible actually tells us that Jesus goes so far to say that every hair of our head is numbered, uh, that the Lord is intimately involved in our lives and, and he's concerned about the everyday details of everything that goes on in your life. He's concerned about the details of a system of worship and exactly how they were to do it and, again, how many loops and what color things were to be. And he's giving very explicit instructions here to Moses. And again, if I can almost summarize what's being described here, this first layer, which would be on the interior most part of the tabernacle. So this would be the part that when the priests were on the inside of the tabernacle, they would see. It would be the interior covering. The other coverings would then go outside of that to make more of a weatherproofing to the outside of it. But this is the innermost portion. And notice it's of white linen with other colors woven in. It says colors of red and purple and blue thread. And again, no doubt these things, just reminders, blue is, is often a symbol of heaven in the scriptures. And the scarlet red reminds us of sacrifice and the blood of Christ. And purple, of course, is the color of royalty, reminding us of how Jesus is king of kings. And white linen uh, speaks of pure. 
purity or the righteousness of Christ, his sinlessness, that he was the sinless one. He was the king of kings who sacrificed in a redemptive way and shed his blood for us. And as a result of that, there is now eternal life and heaven as the hope for every one of us in a sense that covers us because of what Jesus has done for us. So this is also, it tells us here, embroidered with cherubim. So there would be the the angelic beings, these cherubim embroidered into this white linen. So the interior part of the tabernacle was extremely beautiful. As the priests were in there, there was this beautiful white linen with blue and red and purple woven through it. And then artistic cherubim, angelic creatures, uh, you know, embroidered into this. So this very, very beautiful inward uh, setting inside the tabernacle where the priests were ministering. And basically you have here a total of 10 different sheets, uh, linen sheets, which were basically around 42 foot by 6 foot wide. So 42 long by 6 foot wide. And they're hooked together with 50 loops making, in a sense, a a large covering that would stop just a little bit short. Again, if you can envision because of the overall size of 45 foot by 15 foot, this would stop as it went over the walls. It would stop about 18 inches off of the ground. All the other coverings would go all the way down to the ground, but this stops a little bit short, so it's actually not touching, and, and the other coverings will go all the way around that down to the ground the second layer is described to us then beginning in verse 7 it says you shall also make curtains of goat's hair now that's quite different uh, than beautiful white linen with blue and scarlet and uh, you know beautiful cherubim embroidered on them The, the next layer over top is just a layer of goat's hair, which could be any dark color, a black or a brown. Uh, It was rough material. It was kind of coarse goat's hair was. And it tells us there in verse 7 that these curtains of goat's hair shall be a tent over the tabernacle and you shall make 11 curtains. Again, this, this overall piece as a drapery as the next layer will be a little bit bigger, so it will overhang the first piece. To cover it, it will go all the way down to the ground to make it light proof inside the tabernacle and to cover the inner beautiful scenery that would be supplied by the internal layer. And the length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, the width of each curtain four cubits. And the 11 curtains shall have the same measurements. Again, we talked about last week, a cubit is basically 18 inches or one and a half feet. So whenever you see a cubit, you can just kind of, if you're quick with your math, multiply 1.5 towards that. So one and a half feet equals one cubit. And that's where we get these dimensions from in feet, which we relate to a little bit more. Verse 9, you shall couple five curtains by themselves and then six curtains by themselves. Notice you have an extra set here, 10 on the internal, 11 all tied together for this next layer. And the reason is, verse 9, you shall double over the sixth curtain at the front of the tent. So this made the tent flap in the front uh, where you would enter in. In verse 10, you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain 
that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set and you shall make 50 bronze clasps again bronze uh, is always the metal symbolic of judgment different now than the gold and put the clasp into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one and the remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle so that it would touch to the ground to sort of weatherproof it and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it so again this was larger the the goat's hair as i said a way more durable material it, it would uh, serve the purpose to protect the interior beauty on the inside it was an outward covering to sort of uh, help weatherproof it and then we're told there in verse 14 of the remaining two coverings it says and you shall make a covering of ram skins dyed red so there's the third and that's interesting isn't it ram skins dyed red and then the final exterior layer was a covering of badger skins above that now depending upon what translation you have hebrew scholars are uh, still not completely certain exactly what that's referring to whether it's a a sea cow or a sea lion uh, obviously what it's in reference to is some type of an animal type skin that was very taunt and would provide a waterproof uh, which would make sense as is the outermost covering a tight waterproof uh, covering over the entire tent and if you've ever gone camping before you know how important that is uh, so this was certainly the waterproofing layer this animal skin whether it was a, again some type of a, a creature that would exist in an aquatic environment and its skin would repel the water so that it would kind of weatherproof the exterior now I want you to take note of this. Uh, first of all, notice that all of the beauty of the tabernacle was where? It was on the inside. From the outward appearance, the thing really wasn't that attractive. If you think about it, there's this beautiful, you know, wood with, we'll see, overlaid with gold on the interior to make the framework. We'll see in the next chapter, you know, coming up here. Um, and then you have this beautiful linen with all the colors and the cherubim. But then you've got goat's hair. Then you've got ram skins. And then you've got badger skins out on top of that. So it's a very common, practical looking thing when you look at it. But all the beauty is on the inside. And of course, this is just, again, a picture and a reminder of Christ. Because Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, all of the beauty of Christ was internal. Uh, he was deity, he was divine, but yet he lived in a body of flesh. Just a common natural body, just like every one of us. There was nothing in a sense that was unique about Jesus and the way that he looked. And when you read prophecies like Isaiah 53, it says there was no beauty about him that we should desire him. In other words, there was nothing outwardly about Jesus that made him additionally attractive, that would make him stand out in a crowd. He was common, he was human, he had a body of flesh, but all the beauty of Christ is on the inside. In the same way, I think too, as I just think of the experience that we can have with Jesus and the encounter that we can have with God through worship, 
you know, in a sense, many people look from the outside in upon what we so thoroughly cherish and treasure and enjoy in our experience with God, and they look at it as, what's the big deal? Like, what, 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 what are you so attracted to? I and mean, why, why do you like to go there and you sing those songs and you, you raise your hands and you close your eyes? And, 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 and to them, it just seems, the, what's the big deal? It just it seems so common and natural. Well, that's because they're looking from the outside. But see, when you're on the inside, once you come in, and you truly enter by faith and by spiritual experience in a sense the holy of holies and you begin to encounter the presence of God you realize like David said one thing that I desire that I'm inquire in the house of the Lord to behold his beauty all the days of my life and you realize man when you get on the inside if you understand what I'm saying when you come on the inside and you come into Christ all of a sudden you realize oh how beautiful and you see heavenly things and you see the realities because you've come behind the veil. And you see the beauty of the realities of the presence of God, even as this beauty was all contained on the inside and not from the outside. Now, as you look at these different um, layers, the four layers of the tabernacle, again, we don't want to stretch too far, but it is interesting to take note of what's there and how some of what's there sort of does picture again um, maybe some aspects of Christ. Again, as you think of just these badger skins, these very common, kind of not real attractive things from the outside, uh, I think that in some ways is symbolic of what people's uh, perspective is of Jesus when they're outside of a relationship with Christ. They just... Jesus doesn't look like anything impressive to them. You know, he just, he's just this good moral teacher that maybe existed in history. And uh, so what's the big deal? And, and he's not very impressive to them. They're not attracted to Christ. They're not interested in, in Jesus. But once a person comes to Christ, and what's the next layer in? It says the, third, the next layer going on the outside, inside, was ram skins dyed red. And see, that's where it begins. When you experience the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of Jesus for yourself and you experience his salvation and you experience the sacrifice of Christ for what he's done for you in your life and you come into that appreciation and personal experience, all of a sudden that's sort of the, next, that's sort of the first step when you embrace Christ as Savior and you appreciate his blood that was shed for your sins. And then the next layer in was what? As you go to the next layer in, it was that goat's hair, which as I said, it was really a very practical material. It was very, very practical. And I think that's a picture of how once you accept Christ as Savior, as you go a little deeper, as you go a little further, then Jesus becomes a part of your practical everyday life. And Jesus becomes a part of your everyday experience. And, and the practical aspects of everyday living, Jesus starts to be incorporated into all of those things. And then as you press even deeper into your walk and your relationship with Christ, you begin to enter into that place where you begin to see like the white linen with the cherubim and the blue and the red and the scarlet. You begin to see some of the real mysteries of the things that are heavenly. And you begin to understand, like Ephesians 1, the, the, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And as you go further in to the things of God, it's amazing how 
There's greater revelation and deeper experience available with God and most importantly with His Son, Jesus. Well, uh, moving on here as we now come to chapter uh, 26, verse 15, as we go from 15 all the way down to 30, we now get a description of the actual framework, as I said. You have these tent layers, but you need something to kind of support that, the structure. So that's what's described here in verse 15 now. And for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright, and ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. So each board is basically about 15 foot long. They're standing upright. So that's how we know the height of the tabernacle was 15 foot because you have a 15 foot long board standing upright. And each board widthwise, it says, was about two foot three inches wide. And they sat, we're going to see, uh, in silver sockets. Uh, it says, verse 17, two tenions shall be in each board for binding one to another. So again, they couldn't permanently be fastened because this was a portable tabernacle. They had to take it apart, so there were some type of locking mechanisms that were made to kind of just have them interconnect while they were set up and then to be detached again. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle 20 boards for the south side that would run along the 45-foot length. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenions. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards. Again, when you multiply out the math with the width, the uh, two foot, three inches wide times 20, that's what gives you that 45 foot uh, length along the length of the tabernacle. And there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. Now notice these boards are set in a silver socket. Now again, that's interesting because silver in the Bible is the color of a metal known for redemption. Uh, redemption money was always paid for in silver. And I find this interesting because notice, basically the tabernacle, the foundation of it is all in silver. The foundation of the tabernacle, the foundation of God's worship system was rooted in silver. You could say it was built on redemption. It was built on redemption. And that's what God's worship system is still built on, the redemption of Jesus Christ. The whole reason why we get together here and have any reason to get together is because of the redemption of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of everything that we believe in and enjoy is built upon even as it was here. Verse 22, for the side of the tabernacle, the far side, westward, you shall make six boards. This was the shorter 15 foot span. And you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle, and they shall be coupled together at the bottom and coupled together at the top by one ring. And you shall make it for both of them, and they shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. Aren't you glad people know how to build things? God bless them. <laughs> Moses, man, my Moses wasn't even an architect, but he had to bring this down and present this and said, thankfully there are guys in the, in, in the congregation who can build this thing now because I have no idea. He probably was thinking. Verse 26, And you shall make bars of acacia wood 
five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. And the middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. So basically what you have here is a description of sort of cross beams, I guess you would say. Again, you have a lot of boards standing upright. So this kind of describes a cross beam that would help stabilize this, you know, 45 foot long by 15 foot structure that they were establishing. Verse 29, and you shall overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. So you have wooden acacia boards overlaid with gold. So again, how beautiful this all was internally because these boards were on the interior where that white linen was spread over top of. But again, as we even look at this, and we've seen this a few times now in some of the furnishings, we see it again here with the boards. You have acacia wood, which was a very durable, uh, strong wood. It was a very common wood, but it was known in a sense to be somewhat considered imperishable and enduring because of its quality and its strength. But you have wood overlaid with gold. And many see in that a picture in a sense of the humanity and the divinity of Christ. The wood speaking of his humanity, the gold, the gold is always a, a metal of divinity in the scriptures. And many see the, the wood and the gold as sort of a symbolic representation of the humanity of Jesus and the gold representing his divinity. Verse 30, he says, and you shall notice, raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain. So again, this constant re-emphasis, Moses, listen, you can't go down there and say, well, kind of build it like that. It was very important that exactly according to the pattern he received, that they built this to the detail and constructed it exactly as God told them to. Again, very important. When God shows us something, it's important that we pay attention. And when God speaks to us, it's important that we listen. And that we don't sort of take the general idea and run with it. No, we, we want to listen to what God says and do exactly what God says. Because we have no idea the, the, the impact. And, and Moses here was constructing something that somehow was an earthly uh, model of a representation of something that exists in the eternal realm. So we saw last week, I pointed out different verses, this constant reemphasis. You shall raise the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown, Moses, on the mountain. Pay attention to the instructions, he's saying. Verse 31, and you shall then make a veil of wo uh, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen, and it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. So again, we have the same idea. And you shall hang the veil upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. And the veil shall be a divider. Take notice of that verse 33. The veil shall be a divider between the holy place and the most holy. So again, this is telling us the overall dimensions, 45 foot by 15 foot, but then that was broken basically into two rooms. The first room that you entered into was basically 
30 foot deep and it was 15 foot wide. And then there was a veil of separation and behind that veil then was the remaining one third of the tabernacle area, which was basically a 15 foot by 15 foot cube. And that those two areas were separated. The outer area was considered the holy place. That's where, again, the, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, which we didn't get to yet. We'll talk about that in chapters ahead. That's where the priests could all go in and they would do their daily duties within there and accomplish the different things that they were instructed to do as a part of God's worship. And then the very back room, that 15 foot by 15 foot area was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that's where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. That's where God manifested his presence, where the mercy seat was. And one time a year, only the high priest and that with the blood of a sacrifice, Leviticus 16 tells us, the high priest could go into that area and he would apply the blood to the mercy seat there at the altar and, and basically make atonement for the sins of the people. So this veil was a separation. And again, the whole purpose of this is it was intended to be a constant reminder to the people that they could not go directly into the presence of God, that the holiness in the presence of God was not something that they could just casually tread into. That veil was a separation reminding man that in your sinful state, you can't approach a holy God. That, that there was a veil of separation, that sin caused separation. And it was only that one high priest one time a year with the blood of the sacrifice that God would allow to enter into his presence to make atonement. Now, of course, all of this becomes a beautiful foreshadowing because ultimately we know as we fast forward to the temple, the permanent structure that's eventually built in Jerusalem. And we know that when Jesus, the Bible tells us, died upon the cross... It says the veil in the temple, this veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where God's presence was. It says that veil was rent or torn from top to bottom. Now, it wasn't some priest, I promise you, who got up there with a really high extension ladder and a strong pair of shears and went and cut that down. No, God, when Jesus died on the cross intervene in a supernatural miraculous way rent that veil and in a sense was saying now because of what my son has done and his perfect blood that was shed for the sacrifice of sins now everyone will have direct access to the presence of God not just one man one time a year but now everyone through the blood of Jesus Christ can have direct access to the presence of God keep in mind this is something that would be foreign to the mind of a Jew I mean, this would astonish them, this concept that we as Christians, because of the finished work of the blood of Jesus, can have direct access right to the Holy of Holies into the very presence of God himself to intervene and to speak with him. Listen to what Hebrew says in chapter 10, verse 19 and 20 says, therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. That is, Jesus' flesh was torn as he was pierced and he suffered in his body of flesh, in his humanity. The Bible says that was like that veil that God was rending open access by the shed blood of Jesus and the, the tearing of his flesh and suffering for us so that we could have access right into the presence of God in this miraculous, incredible privilege that we now have 
as God's people. Verse 34, he says, And you shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall, verse 35, set the table, the table of Shobat, outside the veil, and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side, so describing where these things were, and you shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver, and you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So again, describing how, notice, there was in verse 36, one door. It was from the eastern side. It gives us the description of the, the table of showbread and, and the menorah being on the north and the south. You entered through the east into the tabernacle and notice there was only one door. Now doesn't that certainly speak of something? There was only one door to enter into the place of worship which ultimately led to the presence of God. There wasn't multiple doors. There was one door. Now that probably wouldn't have met code <laughs> today. But that meant God's code. There was one door, one way of access, one way of entry. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the door. He said in John 14, I am the way, not a way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and life. And no one comes to the Father, to the presence of God, except through me. Jesus is that one means of access to have worship and to enter into the presence of God. We must come through Jesus who is the door as we come to him as Savior and Lord. Now, uh, why don't we put that diagram up if, if we can. I just kind of give you a visual here. This is kind of what we've been talking about. If it just kind of helps you connect the dots, maybe you're saying, I have no idea what you've been saying for the last half hour, but that makes sense. You could have saved me a half hour and we could have got home earlier. Uh, this kind of gives you an idea here. Again, you kind of see the dimensions. You notice the direction uh, from the east. Now, this also shows the courtyard, which we're going to kind of look at in the next chapter, uh, kind of cover that, but it kind of gives you a visual in advance. Uh, and again, if you kind of see this here, basically you can see that the outer courtyard, which chapter 27 will describe for us, was basically like a fence-like area. You can see there was a 30-foot opening coming in from the east, uh, and then you had a 150-foot span by 75-foot was the courtyard. As you came into the courtyard, there was the brazen altar, which we'll talk about in chapter 27. There's the laver where the priests would then wash after they were bloodied from the sacrifices on the altar and so forth, which we'll talk about in chapters ahead. But then you can kind of see what the tabernacle, again, kind of schematically what uh, the Bible is describing here for us. Uh, you would enter into the holy place. That's the first room. And if you, in a sense, look to your right, that's where you would see the table of showbread. If you look to your left, that's where you'd see that menorah, the seven-stick uh, lampstand. Straight in front of you was the altar of incense, and we haven't seen that yet, but we'll talk about that in the chapters ahead. And then, of course, the veil that separated the holy place from what was the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was, and where God actually manifested his presence among the people. So it you know, kind of just gives you a, a visual representation there. And we can we can just leave that up for a little bit, Matt. Why don't we go back to our text here? And if you get bored with my reading, you can just look back at the picture. Uh, but it kind of gives you a reference. We'll go into chapter 27. 
He now describes the altar. You can see here when you first come in, the altar of burnt offering. He says, chapter 27, verse 1, You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. So basically it's seven and a half foot by seven and a half foot square. And the height of that altar was three cubits, or we could say four and a half foot tall. And you shall make its horns on the four corners, and its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Now notice, we're not using gold now, we're using bronze, because bronze was the metal of judgment, and this is where the, the sacrifices were made, sin offerings, trespass offerings, where God's judgment, in a sense, was meted out on the innocent offering instead of being poured out on his people instead. So now they're using bronze as an overlaying metal. And you shall also make its pans to receive the ashes and the shovels and basins and forks and fire pans, all the utensils of bronze, and make a grate for it, which is basically just another reference to how you know how you have a, a grill, uh, the, the, the kind of great area on your grill. This is where the sacrifices were offered. This would uh, support the sacrificial animal, the great. That shall be a network of bronze, and a network you shall make of four bronze rings on the four corners. This was so they could put the poles through and carry it when they transported it. And you shall put under it the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, overlay them with bronze. And you shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. So basically the brazen altar, again, uh, it's where the sacrifices would actually be made uh, by the priests when the people would bring their sacrificial animals to the tabernacle, whether it was for a, a, a sin offering, a trespass offering, a peace offering, which was a fellowship offering, a burnt offering, which is an offering of consecration. And when we get to Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, we'll talk about all those different types of offerings that they could make in worship to God. And basically the brazen altar you can see was basically a seven and a half foot by seven and a half foot box that was there, about four and a half foot high. It had horns on all four corners. Sometimes you'll read in the Old Testament, uh, bind the sacrifice with cords. You'll see a phrase like that. That's what this is referred to. The horns on all four corners was, again, basically just another way as they slaughtered the animal and they put it on top of the grate, they would then, to uh, keep it down when they would light up the fire, they would then tie the animal uh, to the horns on the altar so that it would stay put as the sacrifice was being made. And again, we see how it was made in bronze, a, a type and a symbol of judgment. And take note, again, visually as you're looking at this, as you looked into the tabernacle courtyard and the tabernacle area, which again uh, was the temple precincts, the way into God's presence, a part of their worship, the very first thing you saw and would encounter as you entered in was an altar where there was sacrifice and where there was blood that was shed. And there's no coincidence in that. Because here God is no doubt just symbolically giving them a picture and a reminder of how the presence of God cannot be approached in worship or in fellowship until there is first sacrifice and blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This is God's design. It tells us in Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 that God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it 
to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Again, when we get into Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The idea is removal or forgiveness of sins. So God wanted the people to be fully aware. Look, before you can even begin to approach me, before you can even begin to encounter me, you must come, not just as you please, not just casually, not just, well, God will take me as I am. I'm trying to clean. No, the way to come was through sacrifice. Sacrifice for sin. Blood needed to be shed. There needed to be a blood atonement to satisfy the wrath of a holy and a righteous God against the sinfulness that exists in every one of our lives. Because the Bible says we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that even, listen, the Bible even says our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. That is even our absolute best achievements or performances to be righteous, to do what's right and holy, is still completely filthy in its acceptance when God looks upon it because God's standard is perfection. It's holiness and it's purity. And therefore, there must be something to make atonement for our failures, our mistakes, the sins that we all commit in order to approach a holy God and the requirement that God established. And again, he's God. So he has the right to determine that was blood. God says, I've given the blood for the atonement. So again, they had to approach through sacrifice. That was the first thing that was there encountered as you went into this place of worship was the altar itself. Now, verse 9 down through verse 18 is a description of this courtyard. Uh, as you're kind of looking at it on the picture, I'll read through it. He says, You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side. So again, if you multiply 100 cubits, that's 150 foot. And its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be of bronze. The, the hooks and the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. Again, the setting of the base. Notice, again, the foundation of these sockets as well was silver, that metal of redemption. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long, 20 pillars and there are 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks and pillars of their bands of silver. And along the width of the court on the west side, which would be the back side of the, the courtyard, shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets, so 75 foot along the back end of the courtyard. And the width on the east shall be 50 cubits, the same. The hangings on the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three sockets, and on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with three pillars and three sockets. And verse 16 then tells us the gate, the entryway to the courtyard. There shall be a screen 20 cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen made of a weaver, and it shall have four pillars and four sockets, and all the pillars around the court have bands of silver and their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. And the length, he says, verse 18, of the court shall be 100 cubits and the width 50 throughout and the height five cubits made of fine woven linen and sockets of bronze. So verse 18 gives us the overall dimensions again. You can see there basically on the north and the south, it was 150 foot long on the east and the west 
75 foot wide with a 30 foot access point there where they would come in. It was wide enough so that in a sense anyone and everyone had access. But again, there was only one entry point into the gate into the gate and the courts of the Lord just as the door into the tabernacle there's only one entry point again remember what Peter says in Acts chapter 4 he says salvation is found in no one else there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved again one entry point one access point anyone can come anyone has the freedom to come but everyone must come the same way God gives no partiality. He gives no special prerogatives. Everyone comes as they bring their sacrifice of worship to God through the exact same access point as everyone else. And basically the height described there in verse 18 of five cubits tells us that the uh, sort of gate, uh, or I guess you want to call it more like a, like a fencing, these posts with the linen curtains all around them, which basically made up the perimeter fencing of the courtyard, is basically about seven and a half foot high. So you couldn't just casually stare in to see what was going on. There was, in a sense, a, a, a height created so that you weren't able to see everything that was going on. You couldn't look in and see what the priests were doing. God, in a sense, uh, created it so that it would be designed that way. Verse 19, all the utensils of the tabernacle for its service and pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And God says, you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. So God here makes another request. He commands the children of Israel to bring, notice, pure oil of pressed olives for the light. That's for the menorah on the inside. And again, that was because the menorah was to burn perpetually. The light was never to go out. There was to be a continuous flow of oil. And of course, we know oil in the scriptures many times is symbolic of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there needed to be a continual filling of those lamps so that the light of the Lord and the ministry of the Lord would take place continuously and it would never Cease. And of course, as we look at this, I think there's a part of it that is, you know, maybe a reminder of how in the same way they needed to continuously fill the lamp so that there was a continual flow of oil for the continuation of the ministry of God's spirit to happen among them. That we, the Bible says, we are priests spiritually, the Bible says, first Peter taught us that, that we, in a sense, are, are a spiritual priesthood, a chosen generation. And just like those priests needed to continually fill the lamps with the oil, uh, I don't know about you, but I need to continuously be filled with the oil of God's Spirit in my life. Uh, I can't get by on yesterday's spiritual experience. I need a continual filling, a continuous experience with being filled with God's Spirit to operate in the ministry that He's called me to operate in. For you to operate in the ministry he's called you to operate in as a mediator and someone who represents Christ in the world around us. And we'll talk more about that as we look into the priesthood and so forth in the chapters ahead. And notice verse 21, he's going to say, In the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend to it from evening until morning before the Lord. And it shall be a statute forever to their generations 
on behalf of <clears throat> the children of Israel. So chapters 28 and 29 will then begin to describe the priesthood and their garments and how they would minister and some of those kind of things. Why don't you throw a picture up, Matt, since we have that one too. This kind of maybe just as a, a little more of a visual rendering as we talked about the courtyard again, if you didn't catch anything I said in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, this is kind of an idea of what would maybe look like. Again, this is an artist's rendering you can find these kind of pictures and images on you know, Google or in Bible uh, map books and uh, Bible dictionaries and so forth. But kind of just maybe gives you a visual of what it would be like. You can kind of see the, 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 um, the area where the priests would, at the brazen altar, uh, make the sacrifices. You can see tables that were there where they would slaughter the animals and properly prepare them. Uh, so again, keep in mind, uh, the ministry of the priesthood in that day... Uh, it was a pretty bloody job, uh, and it was a pretty laborious job. It wasn't ministry then was not what we often envision ministry now. In that day, to be in ministry, you were getting blood on your hands. You were, you know, you were strenuously exerting yourself to do things. But again, all of those things were a part of the process of understanding what it meant when a sinful human being offended a holy God, and what was required. I tell you this. I guarantee in that day, now we look at that and we say, oh, praise God that we are not under the law and that Jesus has done for us. Uh, and, and we deeply appreciate that. But I'll tell you this, I'm sure in their minds there was a very strong understanding of what it meant of when you sin and do something selfish, you couldn't just trivially blow it off as if it was no big deal. Because you would watch an innocent animal have its throat slit and the blood pour out of its juggler and, and watch this innocent animal have to die in your place in order for you to be forgiven and have fellowship with God. And there was a very strong understanding of some of those kind of things. Turn with me over to the book of Hebrews. I just want to read this to put it into your minds, to deposit it as we close out our study tonight. I think it's fitting, again, I encourage you, as I said, to read through these chapters, but I just want to read through Hebrews chapter 9, and kind of, I want you to see how some of these things we've been describing, again, symbolically fulfilled in Christ and so forth, may just give a little new appreciation to some of these kind of things. Hebrews chapter 9, I'm just going just gonna to read here. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's budded staff, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests, notice, always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing their services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins committed in ignorance. 
the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For there, there is a testament. There must also be the necessity of the death of the testator or the one who writes a will or contract. For a testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. We saw that a few chapters ago, saying this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no remission therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with ease but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Verse 26, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You know, I encourage you, as you maybe have time tomorrow morning or sometime this next week, you know, read through chapters 8 and 9 and, and into chapter 10 and, and just allow the Spirit of God to just connect the dots for you and to illuminate what we've looked at in the tabernacle with what Jesus has done for us by coming and tabernacling among us as God in flesh and ultimately sacrificing himself as the Lamb of God and shedding his blood so that our sins aren't just covered, but our sins are removed. Listen, 
this evening because of the work of Jesus Christ the reason you have access to the presence of God in prayer and perfect fellowship whenever you want by faith alone and the reason you can have access to God when you die and go directly in the presence of God is not because your sins are just covered they're there but they're just covered no it's because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin your sin has been removed purged by the finished work of Christ and your faith in that